0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: How you doing, Rob? Good to see you. Hey,
2: Rob. Hello, Alan. How are you? How's bien, bien, bien. How's
3: your
1: Spanish, Paul? Comprende. No. <laughs> uh, <no comprende. laughs> I should you know, know Spanish. I grew up in uh, the Southwest in New Mexico okay. and Texas. So I went to school with a lot of Spanish speakers, picked up nothing.
3: But well, you know, everybody says this about, about their own language, but every Spanish speaking person I've spoken to say, you know, it's the language of heaven.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> hey, Matt and the team. Matt.
2: Hey,
3: Tim. hey uh, I noticed, Paul, that in chapter. 9 uh the chapter we're supposed to be reading for today you give someone um credit for an insight then you uh, mention Matt Matt Welch in uh, that chapter
1: oh yes is he is Matt, he
3: impulse book well done <laughs> in a little footnote
5: <laughs> yeah 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 that's my that's that's the only proof that i was here
1: <laughs> very good very good Matt uh, helped me edit it. He helped me uh, put oh. together the uh, the index.
5: That wasn't me. That was I think that was John Toddy. Oh, uh- <laughs> Matt, John, John, Matt.
2: <laughs> Matt, when are you guys gonna work on the illustrated version of this book?
5: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just telling Paul that I I remember during the editing process I wanted to include like a a couple kind of like chart like graph like you know sort of like either things to, I guess, help explain what some of the definitions meant, you yeah. know? Like, yeah, just, yeah. Uh, okay, like the correlations between like, you know, the ego and the imaginary and sort of what Paul's doing or to do like the superego and make it easier, I think, for the reader to kind of, you know.
3: I've spent hours, Look, what subject? Ego? What's Is that the real? No, the imaginary.
5: No, what is the subject? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I, all I can say is that I tried, and my uh, my suggestion was shot down with a double-barreled shotgun.
1: By me? Yeah. Uh, well, my uh, graphic ability, you know, Lacan actually, she uh, uses a lot of graphs. Oh, that's
3: okay. Uh,
1: I can't claim I always understood his graphs. <laughs> that <laughs> <laughs> didn't help.
2: Do a version like the book uh, does. The center hole has yeah. those little cartoons in it. Yeah. Right? yeah.
5: yeah. <laughs> all right he could do like a little like cartoon version like a like a snoopy or like a garfield version yeah. let's call theology of sin and death you know
3: yeah.
5: have you guys seen that series armchair theologians like carl
3: bite for armchair theologians and- yeah, yeah. yeah i mean they're, they're little pictures but they, they make it more interesting
5: <laughs> yeah i love that uh the existential comics one it's like philosophers you know and kind of like a cartoon they're they're actually really funny david
1: good to see you good to be here and Thomas, to say hello to Thomas. Hi, right. Thomas. Hello. Hi. Yes, Thomas. A drawing that I've done to understand the ego and then understand the correlation. But if if you have a triangle and you got you have the ego, the superego, and then the id, you know, it doesn't matter where they're at in the triangle. But anyway, the three parts. Uh, and then, of course, with the ego goes, what would go with the ego? Ego is Freud's and Paul's term. But what is the Zizekian Lacanian term?
2: That would be the imaginary.
1: The you? imaginary. Yes. The imaginary. Okay. Uh, all of you are negative one on the final test. <laughs> okay. What would the superego be? Symbolic. Yes. Yes. Trent, you got here just in time for the final exam. <laughs> so the superego would be the symbolic. And then what would the id be? The real. The real. Okay, now let's do Paul. What would the ego be? The eye. The eye. Actually, it's just the same word. It's the word ego in Greek. So the ego, the imaginary, the eye. And then what would the superego be? Is it the law? The law. The superego, the law, the symbolic. All the same thing. And then what would the id be if we're Paul? This is the tough one.
5: The truth that is
1: denied. Yeah? Yeah. The body of death. Uh, The body of death. And the reason I think it's the body of death is because, you know, the real is for Zizek and Lacan kind of the incomprehensible category. You can describe Zizek's whole genre. He's always circulating around the real and he's never presuming to say what that is because you can never say directly what the real is because it's actually the antagonism between the imaginary and the symbolic. And so it is that antagonistic relationship. I think that my book makes all of this easy. (laughs) I'm glad you're not laughing real loud. I'm saying that this structure functions like a lie. I gather that up, and I think it's, I don't think I'm being untrue to Lacan or Zizek. I'm just gathering up what they're saying, and I'm describing and I'm using their language throughout and to say, well, what we have here is the dynamic. I mean, it's an imaginary, it's symbolic, it's the real. It is then the structure of the human subject, but the structure of the human subject is based on this deception. It is a deception. For Zizek, that's all you got. I mean, that you could just end the sentence there. And you need the primordial lie, the fundamental fantasy, in order to have a human subject. And so in the lie, you know, what is the medium of the lie? And everybody answers language. Language, the symbolic, the superego, right? In other words, we're adding another layer onto this. And this just flattens out. This just stretches every direction. You know, this is how philosophy ties in. But what's happening, you know, what Zizek is doing with various philosophers is reduplicating this structure in Hegel and, and others. Uh, so, the symbolic or the, the medium of the lie, the law, and, and understand this is the way that I think the New Testament is describing the function of the law, that the law mediates, but what does it mediate? Uh, Today, I did a blog on Calvin. I've sent it to Matt to edit. But if there's any mistakes, they are still (laughs) Paul's. Now I'm going to put a footnote at the bottom. The full responsibility for
5: For everything
1: (laughs) goes to Matt Welch. (laughs) In that, you know, you you look at Calvin's commentary on Romans, and I think Calvin is typical here. all, All we're doing, you know, in a sense, we're just dwelling in Romans 7. And so Paul uses the word delusion, lie, and that's there in Scripture. You know, that's there everywhere in Scripture. That, you know, and especially if Paul is doing Genesis 3, I don't care what you think of Genesis 3, whatever you think of that book, but for the people in the Bible, for Paul, and for the writers of the, I think, of the Old Testament, but in particular, Paul in Romans 7, he is doing a commentary on Genesis 3. And I think that's the only way you're going to understand Romans 7. And that then, once you put it in that context, and by the way, this is not me, this is I, when I say the majority of commentators, that I think that there is a consensus among key commentators that what Paul is doing is a commentary on Genesis 3. And that then makes sense of the, you know, the sequence of events, that I did not know what sin was until I encountered the law. Well, you know, the way that Calvin reads this is to say, you know, he's reading it in a real flat way. Uh, And I think most Christians read it in a real flat way. That is, how can there be, how can you get sin all tangled up in the law? That did not make any sense. Well, it doesn't make any sense unless you're reading Genesis 3, because, you know, it's only in Genesis 3. You know, if you're reading this as Exodus, well, then you could read it as, well, The before the law was given, you know, people dwelt in sin, and this is the way Calvin is doing it, is that say, he's just saying a very simple thing. Well, people sinned, and then the law came, and through the law, they discovered what sin was. In other words, I think that's a fairly typical Calvinist reading, that, that if you're a Calvinist, you're going to read Romans 7, uh, the parts where Paul is talking about, I don't know what I'm doing that uh, with the law of my mind, the law of my body. Calvin says, oh, the reason he's having that struggle is because he's a ge- regenerated. He's a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so the struggle, the masochistic struggle that he's depicting the split within the cell. Calvin says, Oh, that's because he's a Christian. What I would say is, Boy, that would be a temptation to me not to become a Christian, if that's what it looks like. In other words, it just gives you an awareness of sin and it really gives you an incapacity to doing anything about it. Now you just now you're just guilty and you're struggling and you split against the self, and there's nothing you can do about it. I think that's a pitiful picture first of all, of Christianity. Second of all, it's just a misreading of Romans 7, because in a sense, it's easier to understand. In other words, I think John Calvin is much easier to understand than the Apostle Paul. And certainly he's easier to understand than anything I'm saying. And so if you want to go with simple, you know, just teach them John Calvin, because you can give them the little formula, and then you can do everything according to that formula. Uh, I just happen to think that Paul is doing something that is actually quite complicated, and it's not instinctive to us to understand it because, in fact, we're caught up in this thing. In other words, the way Calvin is reading it, he's saying, well, the law exposes the delusion, the lie of sin. Well, then, what is the law? He doesn't really even translate it as law. He just says the only thing that sin does It knocks people from following the course of the law. And so he just glosses over the notion of a delusion. He says, once you have the law, then the delusion is dispelled. Well, wait a minute. He can't be reading Genesis 3. And, you know, Calvin is obviously not tying Romans 7 into Genesis 3, which I think is obvious that Paul is doing. And once you say that, then, then he's describing Exodus, And by the way, N.T. Wright would say, yeah, he may, or some people say, well, he may be doing both. A lot of people say he's doing both. Mm -hmm. And that's a very Jewish idea, because the prohibition in the garden is often seen as a kind of proleptic or a kind of summary of the law, that all of the law is contained in the original prohibition. And and that seems to be Paul's argument. Paul did not care, you know, what law we're talking about. Is it Genesis? I think he is tying into that. Is it Sinai? Yeah, it's that too. Well, actually, that's everything for Paul. Once you said it's Adam and it's the Jews, that's everybody, because we're all either either you're in Adam or you're a Jew, and actually everybody's in Adam, and being a Jew doesn't make any difference anyway. It's sometimes hard to tell what law Paul may be talking about. You know, I think obviously in places like Romans 4, he is talking about the, the covenant given subsequent, you know, he's talking about the covenant and then the law that comes with Abraham. What, what I'm describing, I think, is what Paul descri- is describing, is that this whole delusion that we have as human beings is caught up in our orientation to the law. And by law, we just mean, you know, you can mean a lot of things by that. It's the superego. It's language. It's the, the authority of culture. It's your father figure. Paul is just saying we're all subject to this punishing law, superego, symbolic. I think it's the same thing. And of course, what I'm doing in the book, I'm saying, well, Lacan and Zizek are saying this. I think they are saying this, but you can't find anywhere where they just run it down this way. I've done you a favor. I think you could read Zizek the rest of your life and never figure out what he's saying. Uh, because his main thing is he's, he's entertaining and he's kind of circulating around the main thing. But the body of death, in a sense, makes very explicit what the real is. And in places, Zizek does as much. In other words, what is the real? Well, in a sense, it is the most complicated, but in another way, it's the most simple category because it's just the biological body. And in other words, his presumption is we don't have access to our bodies per se. That may sound strange, but what we do with our bodies is we put upon the bodies the principle of the flesh. So what Calvin is saying, and Calvin is typical, he means by the flesh, well, anytime you're in the body, you're in the flesh. Everybody who's human is in the flesh, uh, you're in the body. The only salvation is to put off the flesh to get rid of the body it's it just sounds like a strict dualism to me that you're saved by being taken out of the body it seems like
5: calvin is mistaking the problem for the solution so the way i formulated it earlier was that jesus didn't come to save us from the father he came to save us from death which gives in its effects you know but it seems like calvin has sort of switched out the two you know that, that he's mistaking god for death because Jesus is saving us from the very thing that saves us, which is God. It's like death is put into its place. And so the whole thing with penal substitution, it's like, it's what I was trying to get earlier, where it's like Calvin really does seem to kind of, um, you know, the law, that's the thing you kept on saying, Calvin's a lawyer, you know, he was a lawyer, but it's like the one thing and everything that you've been describing that remains kind of like the most sort of firm and solid is the law. Everything seems to revolve around like the constancy and and like the actuality of the law and it seems like even maybe god
1: even god is sort of holding to the law, subject to the law yeah yeah that gets into our whole class i think that wasn't that last week we you know we talked about yeah that's modernity that's nominalism that the law became the thing you know quite literally in science the natural law was something that even god was subject to but it's also true philosophically in Duns Scotus and William of Ockham, that they're describing, you know, what nominalism is. You don't have a- access to who God is in his essence. You just have the name. You just have the nom- nominal is, you know, the, uh, not the universals, not the thing itself. You just have the mediating. Literally, they're saying, oh, you just got the law, and you don't have God. And, of course, that idea, I think, is there in deism, that God himself, you know, he's just the law giver.
5: Oh, I was going to say that it seems like um, I was thinking more about the stuff with Calvin. And it's almost like Calvin is imagining that God is constrained by, again, I, you know, Calvin as a lawyer, his a notion of justice, right? That God has to, you know, he has to punish sin. He has to punish Christ. He had, you know, that God is beholden. He's constrained by his own word. I used to always ask my Calvinist friends. It's like, well, why couldn't God have just done it some other way? You know, why why did, you know, Jesus have to die on a cross? You know, it seems, why couldn't he be stoned or whatever, you know? Or why do you even have to come at all? You know, and they said, well, because God had said, you know, that if you, if you sin, you die. And then there has to be a sacrifice. In other words, there's this whole, system that that god has said that there is and now he's kind of constrained to keep his word uh and to do so would be to kind of fail to kind of be himself or whatever but the thing that is left out of that whole equation though is the is the is that god is love in other words that yeah but what's being obscured there by that whole notion of justice and law and sacrifice and all this stuff is like is the fact that god is love what I'm afraid that keeps happening in all these different systems, and it's the same thing that you're you're saying that's happening with the, the human subject, also. So maybe all this stuff is kind of you know a result of what's happening to us in our own subjectivity. Is that God is displaced? The God of love, the God of life, the God of the good, you know, is displaced, and he's like displaced by something very specific, and that is death, sin, law, ego, the imaginary the nothing that that's what you're saying. And you were saying that this week is like the good news, right? That chapter eight of your book is kind of like the, like this week is the good news, right? That we've been building up the whole class and talking about the, the problem. And I, that's what I love about when I finally got to that chapter in your book, I was like, you know, it kind of blew my mind a little bit because um, it was such good news, you know, because the the picture had been painted so starkly and so darkly, I guess that once God breaks through you kind of understand the gravity of what it is that he's breaking into because we've totally displaced the goodness and beauty and grandeur and glory and you know love of God for a, a total sort of dark imaginary, twisted fantasy, to quote Kanye West in a weird way. You I, know? So, I, yeah. yeah.
1: I hate I hate to disappoint everyone and you, Matt, especially, but actually we're on we're not to the good news yet. Oh no, man. <laughs> You know, I just, uh, ch- oh, so it's, no. chap- it's chapter nine. And so chapter nine is the beginning of a transition. Okay. It's actually chapter 10. Okay. Uh, so chapter nine is, we're still dealing a lot with, with Zizek in Sorry. chapter. Nine. So, <laughs> but you guys know the good news is coming. And, and we've been dwelling in the darkness so long. Uh, I hope your eyes, you know, are, are adjusted. So that's you know that's kind of the opening the meaning of body of death or the body of sin and and the significance is there that's functioning as the, as the real
4: um i think it would be uh, yesterday when i was at work somebody was saying uh, or i was like how was your weekend they're like oh i got baptized in in the you know in the ocean and everything we're just talking about the experience of of that and significance and then i don't know a few of us were talking about john the baptist and just the whole Trying to recall, like I don't know, Bible college things about that, but anyway, one thing we could talk about, I guess, is all is the significance of baptism. I don't know if you seem to suggest that it's like the, the new subject, baptism is an ontological alternative to the body of death, as there is a joining to his body as a new subject.
1: Let me give you a little history behind this chapter and behind what I did. You know, we're out of the, in the restoration movement, we're kind of known for our focus on baptism. And so when I got over to England and I thought the last thing I want to do is deal with Romans chapter six and have to go through the whole thing on baptism. But in a meeting with Connor Cunningham, he said, well, you've got to deal with chapter six and the importance of baptism." <laughs> uh, oh, <laughs> and of course, once you once you deal with Chapter Six, I mean, it is a chapter about baptism. So actually, I was going to kind of try to hide out, and Connor Cunningham actually ended up giving me very good advice. I, I should I should have tacked that on when I was talking about him last week. He really he really brought the, the dissertation around. Because he said, oh, no, you've got to deal with Chapter 6, and you've got to deal with Chapter 8. And, of course, that's what's happening in Chapter 6. And, ironically, Zizek himself focuses on baptism. Uh, You know, as an atheistic Marxist materialist, that sounds strange. But he was upset. I can't remember some Vatican, you know, whether it was the second Vatican, you know, when they said, well, everybody's saved. You don't need to go through baptism. He, and his point is, well, no, you need to go through the specific, you know, the work of Christ, he's saying, is specific to Christianity. That's the claim of chapter, chapter 6, that we're going to miss, you know, we're, we're kind of working backward, but in chapter 7, once you've said that what this whole thing gives us is a false subject, in other words, human subjectivity uh, is suffering from a delusion. And I often think, you know, when I say that, this sounds even worse than Calvinism. I thought when I picked up Calvin's commentary, you know, like, well, here's the hard-hitting, you know, he's going to really go strong on this idea of delusion. But he just brushes over it. Because, of course, what you're doing in Augustinianism and Calvinism, you're leaving sin a mystery. What I think Paul is doing in these chapters, five, six, seven, and 8, actually, I didn't deal with 5. But I think in all of those chapters, he's dealing then with the, the way that the mechanics of sin and salvation, that is how, what is this thing? And once we're in an Augustinian universe, you really don't ask those questions. And that's why you get this perverse, equivocal understanding of just basic vocabulary. Even a, a thing like God is love. In Calvin, that doesn't mean much. You know, because what he means by that, yeah, there's that love thing, but he thinks of love as a kind of anthropomorphism, and that wrath is, in fact, more descriptive. It is the prime attribute of God. And he's going to do that with a series of words. You know, words no longer mean anything. You know, righteousness, it's repellent. And and we're all trained this way. We say, well, you know, God is a mystery. And so, yeah, it's kind of perverse, you know, enjoying the uh, eternal torture of the majority of the human race. But, you know, it's a, that's God's righteousness. And we, we can't comprehend these things. And so, so much, and Calvin will do this, but of course, uh, Augustine did it first, that they're going to talk about God in terms of a mystery. And on that basis, they're going to sell us perversity. David Bentley Hart's point is, the good, the true, and the beautiful is something that I think we can recognize. But there is the sense that all that Calvin wants us to recognize, and of course, when I'm talking Calvin, I'm also talking this philosophical period of nominalism, is that sovereignty and power become the key legitimating force. You know, the the first, God is first cause. And that becomes the, the basis for talking about everything. I'm making a long point here about baptism. What I'm saying, and I think what Paul is saying, is, no, we can identify this thing. And the way that we identify it is that we're different kind of people. That here is the, the predicament that in the subjection to the law of sin and death, that this actually is a, a subjectivity that we can describe. And all, all of Khan and Zizek are saying, yeah, and they describe it. And they say, okay, this is what this looks like. And I think they're, they're just saying, we're just doing Paul. And so all this gets left out, so that what, you know, I think that then what salvation means is very much tied into death and resurrection. You embrace both simultaneously, because the nature of the disease is such that it's a a kind of death resistance. It's a reification of death. It's an absolutizing of death. That's what we're describing, right, in the real. This is why we're, at this point, beginning to go against Zizek and Lacan. In their world, you can't undo the real. In other words, this is just what a human subject is. And to undo it would be to undo human subjectivity. You need this thing. You need this negativity. You need the real. Uh, You need the antagonism. You need the struggle because that's what constitutes the human subject. But if we go back to our triangle, I think that this is, you know, we can fill in the blanks in a different way. What is three? Well, God is three. What are we describing when we're describing a tripartite self? Oh, I think we're describing the way in which we participate in the Trinity. And that's what we're building up to here. I think in baptism that we participate in the death of Christ. And this is where it becomes highly controversial. I think that, that a lot that Paul is doing rests upon a particular translation or a particular understanding of baptism. And here is where people that, you know, ha- that are raised in a tradition where baptism is not emphasized are not very good commentators, I think, on Romans 6. And it, actually, the Catholic commentators, is it Joseph Fitzmaier, isn't he a Roman Catholic? priest. I, I really liked Fitzmaier's stuff. In other words, the Roman Catholics really take this whole baptism thing seriously. But if you're out of a kind of swingly and Calvinist tradition, what you're going to say about this, you know, the sumfutoi, or the idea of being joined to Christ, what exactly are we joined to? What does that mean? You know, the idea is we're joined to his death. I was surprised. James Dunn, of all people, and this is why I kind of gave up on James Dunn, He's going to say we're joined to the likeness of Christ. We're not joined to Christ, but we're joined to the sign. We're joined. In other words, he's he's wanting to not make baptism a serious thing. He's wanting to say, like any good Baptist would say, it's an outward sign of an inward event. And so you leave the sign and the signified detached from one another. And, of course, by making the inward, the primary, the real, you know, not in G. Jackian terms, but the reality and the outward, a mere sign, you're assigning the world and the body and outward things a kind of secondary reality. And that's precisely what Paul is not doing. And I think that's not what, you know, that's not the New Testament, that the sign and the signified are joined in Christ. You know, this was the problem with circumcision. That it was a sign, but what it signified was not present in the sign. Did we do circumcision last week? I can- that
4: part out.
1: <laughs> I circumscribed it, yes. What is the sign of circumcision in the case of Abraham? Well, he thought that he could have the power of propagating his life through his children, and he could do that on his own. And Alan pointed this out to me last night. And and actually, it was a point I I had never made. Alan, can you explain the point you made to me last
2: night? Because Mr. Axon was saying that Abraham believed he had the power to give life through well through his penis, you know. For that, and and so what I pointed out was that if we go through the chapters in Genesis, chapter 15 is where he where he gets the promise of being the father through whom you know this blessing to all the nations is going to come and then the next chapter that's when he uh when Ishmael is born and so that's that's the child outside of the promise he's not even, he's not circumcised yet so that's definitely Abraham's son then the next chapter after Ishmael is born that's where uh, god institutes circumcision as the sign of, of of this pact that they're having of this covenant and then after circumcision that's when Isaac is born so Isaac is the child born from the promise. So uh, Ishmael is, you know, the result of Abraham's power to give life. Uh,
1: Isaac is the result of God's power to give life. So what's the lie that we're dealing with? It's always the same lie that there's life in my capacity to keep the law. There's life in the law. Uh, you can say that in a lot of ways. Maybe there's life in a really tall penis looking like rocket. Or maybe a big, tall penis looking like tower that I storm the heavens with. And I'm saying this only semi-facetiously. If you know something about idolatry, the phallic symbol is a key symbol, a key idol. And, you know, in Japan, they call them both you know, the little Buddha. But it's actually a, a phallic symbol. That's true in, uh, you know, that's obviously what's taking place in Ezekiel that they are, they are building huge penises. And, and penis, you know, maybe that's the wrong word. It, you know, that, that Freud and Lacan are going to talk about this, and they're going to talk about the, about the phallus, and, and they're going to say, yeah, we're not really anymore talking about actual male genitals. We're talking about the uh, power to propagate ourselves, to give ourselves life. In other words, it is a symbolic thing. And that's there, you know, in Ezekiel's, you know, that you lust after the, the phallic symbols as large as donkeys. I don't know what they were, but but I think they were literally idols in the shape of phalluses. Uh, and we find those all over the world. It is circumcision, you know, after Ishmael. So Abraham still was thinking, oh, I got life in myself and I'm going to help God along. That is a type of the human problem or the human predicament of imagining that we are self-propagating. And you. I, I just believe you can say this thing in an infinite variety of ways. You're innately immortal. A- any way that you can in some way establish yourself, propagate yourself. Biblical manhood. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh,
5: <laughs> this is what they i mean it is it's kind of crazy uh the ezekiel passage talks about actually like the emissions you know being like it's kind of gross you know but but I, it's kind of weird how there is a bit of like you know because to me that phallic symbol is of course it's like a symbol of power right like and so the whole thing with freud and being you know powerless and all this other stuff like it's all there and the phallic symbol but isn't it, it's always kind of struck me a little bit weird about kind of like the uh, and I mean this like respectfully I, I mean I, I guess I don't understand it but kind of like the obsession with each other's peepees you know it's like well you know you're circumcised and I'm not or I'm you know there's this you know there's like this comparing of of kind of like you know penises or whatever you know it's kind of like a weird way to do identity it's like I, I am my penis you know I'm I'm circumcised and you're not and. You know, it's, it's, isn't that, I mean, it just always struck me a little bit weird. Like, were they, I don't know, you know, was it like in the bathhouse? And they were like, oh, look, you know, he's, he's uncircumcised. Like, I don't know how it worked, but it seems strange to me. It always has.
1: Well, of course, now we're, we're into Freudian psychology. This is the key thing in, in Freud and Lacan and Zizek. Yeah, I was, I was going to say the same thing Rob. I don't know what in the world. He's <laughs> 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 never had that experience. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that is the castration complex. And and then, of course, the refusal of castration is the pervert. What would be another way of saying pervert, refusal of castration? You're going to have to explain that one to us. Uh, it, it's just somebody who said, this is the masculine orientation. This was one of the questions I asked, you know, what if you had to classify what is theology if you had to pick a gen- – and gender is the wrong word – but if you had to pick masculine or feminine for theology what's the gender there? I would think it would be male. And it's male because you can say everything. You can say it all.
5: That's why I was – I mean, I was half joking around earlier, uh, but – That's what I meant about the penis or whatever. It's like in the power or whatever. It's in the place of the masculine or the law. That's To me, that's the power of the symbolism.
1: Yes, that that in some way. Who has the real stuff? Who's got the real law? Who's got the real symbol? And so literally, Hegel is going to say we can say it all. Hegel's going to say philosophy is kind of the summation of all, of everything but his is a characteristic i think of of even what's happening prior to that i think this is a characteristic of modernity in and of itself yeah. is that a new word everybody knows the word ontotheology. so give, a de-
4: so. give us a definition
1: okay onto ontological ontotheology, theology theology concerned with being think of duns scotus the university of being in the university of being, where there is the idea that there is a continuum between the being of God and the being of the world, that we can say it all. In, in Lacanian terms, it is the masculine orientation. That's, what, that's one of the key things in that in postmodernism they're critiquing onto theology. The notion, you know, think back to Anselm. Anselm predates this a little bit, but I always think, you know, the ontological argument. He's going to give us the being of God on the basis of this argument, and he's going to capture who God is in his name. God is something than which nothing greater can be thought. In fact, leave God out of that. You just name God something than which greater, nothing greater can be thought. And you think that thought, and you've thought the name of God, and in thinking the name of God, you've made an ontological transition to the place of God. That's what he's actually saying in the ontological argument. If you go to the monologion, or, I or mean, to the proslogion, the monologion, and he's doing something different. He he, a, a little bit more orthodox than Dun Scotus. Anselm is still at least he's positing an ontological difference, but he's saying we can cross that ontological divide in the ontological argument. And so the you know this is apologetic. I just proved God to you in 30 seconds. God is something you can't. Once you do the ontological argument, according to Anselm, you can't deny God, because once you say the name God, what you said is the greatest thought that can be thought. And if you said the greatest thought that can be thought, this is not a thought that cannot be thought. So if you're going to think the thought, you've got to think that he is existent. If you think he doesn't exist, then you've not thought the greatest thought that can be thought. That's why the fool is a fool, because he thinks the greatest thought that can be thought and then says he didn't think it. Is that uh, is that too fast?
5: I don't think it's too fast. I guess I'm having I'm trying to make the connection between what your point is, between that, the masculine, and the, the you know, the law and what we've been discussing so far.
1: Because in apologetics, traditional natural theology, in these arguments you capture everything in philosophical arguments in the symbolic order you can say everything you can say god you can say the name of god you can pronounce yourself into a kind of ontological difference and that's perverse i think that's perverse
4: so is the is the contrast or the i guess the right approach as opposed to onto theology would you say then it's just revelation so that it's not us, humans, that are the source of God and who He is and His being, but the source is Him who has revealed Himself to us in Christ?
1: Yeah, I think we have to have revelation. First of all, because of the nature of who God is, and and then because of who we are, and especially because who we are as failed human beings, but then how has God come to us? Has He come to us in theories, propositions, and doctrines? If you were a good modernist, if you were Carl F.H. Henry, you would just say, yes, that these propositional truths are who God is. If you accede to these propositions, you know, whatever the list of propositions might be making up Orthodox Christianity, that's what it means to be a Christian. Well wait a minute. Is that what the Bible is, as a series of propositional truths? And, of course, the, the point is, yeah, no, the, what's happening in Scripture is not theories. It's not timeless truths in the sense that they are transcendent and above the human condition that are being revealed to us. It is historical, contingent truths. Christ comes to us in history, in time in the human condition because that's who we are but uh, also because you know when we talk about christ is the truth it is over and against i think the delusion that is otherwise described so yes and by the way this is zizek strangely enough this is why zizek emphasizes revelation that what is happening in christianity is revelation you know this is wittgenstein too Uh, Wittgenstein, many of the people that were with Wittgenstein were Christians. It was, I think it was the guy that became a medical doctor, but he was thinking about becoming a priest. And Wittgenstein says, please don't do that because I know what will happen. Someday I'll come to, to, you know, the the church and you'll be up there preaching and you'll be explaining to me why we can come to God through reasonable arguments. And he considered that a kind of blasphemy. It's a blasphemy, blasphemy for Wittgenstein because of his view of language. Because what's taking place in the ontological arguments, or in many of the arguments, is that you're climbing the ladder of language in order to escape the earth.
4: I, I have thought about this a little bit. I read Merrill Wessel's book, Overcoming Onto years ago. And so I'd recommend that, but it's like probably eight or t- eight or nine years ago that I read that. But I think the way I remember him describing it is that, like you were saying, in medieval theology, God becomes you know this, the highest being or the first cause, uncaused, right? And then this this leads through a process of being kind of inscribed. God becomes sort of, um, included within these abstract, rational, philosophical principles. And then the idea of, of like thinking about God beyond onto theology, or like Marion's book here, I have God without being, is is to release God from the this the the kind of uh, the way he's been. That's why we need the revelation, as as um, Trenton was saying, because we because being says says nothing about God really is one. Is one way you can put it. Or Heidegger said, uh, "Before the God of the philosophers, one can neither sing or dance." So even Heidegger said that. You know, this abs this God of onto theology You know, I think Mary Westphal says that's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he makes a distinction between the God of the philosophers, starting with Aquinas, and and it's not like you fault Aquinas or these guys, right? It's it's a it's a thing that happened, kind of in history, that God became describing these rational principles. Yeah, he makes that distinction between the God of the philosophers and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.
1: Westfall is very accessible, I think.
4: Paul, uh, would, would you tie this onto theology into um, Calvin and Augustinian and um, Anselm? and Does it, <clears throat> does it all kind of come as a single piece altogether and that's what they're kind of pushing?
1: Well, this is the strange thing that I'm doing and it kind of breaks all the rules. You know, radical orthodoxy, there's the clear demarcation. We have the modern. And what happens in the modernity is well, you have Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. In other words, the turn, the split between reason and faith. And of course, I, I'm not denying that there are these characteristics in modernity that are unique. I'm not, you know, I think Charles Taylor's depiction of the secular. We really do experience the world differently. But my point, you know, I always go back to Anselm, and Anselm's the wrong time period. Cunningham misunderstood what I was going to do with Anselm. and That's why, in fact, I ended up leaving Anselm out of it. The the typical radical Orthodox dissertation or book, you take a problem, and then you go back to an ancient theologian, a pre-modern theologian, and show then how... That they then correct this modern problem. Uh, this was actually pre- predominant. I, I remember there was a Derrida, and I can't remember who all was there. Actually, Mary uh, Caputo and Westfall, in fact, may have been there. And actually, Derrida got up in this, and he was confused by this because what they were trying to say to him, you know, it was a, it was a conference about him, and he was there, and they were trying to describe deconstruction or the problems that he was deploying or talking about as peculiarly modern. And he said, why, why would you say that? Why would you restrict it to the modern? And I I think that he's right. In other words, he goes back and does a reading of the tower of Babel. He goes back and does a reading of Genesis, obviously not from a believing standpoint, but just to say that, Oh, this is, this is the predicament. And I I think in that, uh, that it is a biblical understanding. So this is kind of my take on Millbank, you know, and his focus on Dun Scotus. That you know, for Millbank, you know, okay, who did this thing? Well, the radical orthodox guys all say, "Oh, is that Dun Scotus? He caused all our problems. Spread it out, but mainly Dun Scotus, William of Ockham, you know, Suarez." That that there is this introduction of nominalism in modernity, and they're going to say it's this theological shift tied to the Franciscans. My problem with that is not the particulars. I think in the particulars, uh, you know, he he may be right or not, but I think mainly he's right that these guys did do something that was tragic. But the question is, how does history function? And my point is that that whole depiction of modernity is mistaken. That in fact, the problem of modernity is not a problem apart from what we're describing in this chapter of Romans and in this book. Modernity is a case in point of the perverse orientation to the law. That's all I, that's what I'm saying. That's what Paul would have said. I think that Paul gives us a critique of modernity before it happened because it's just an aggravated form of the perverse orientation to the law. It's not a thing apart from the root human problem. And this goes back Nathan to your question about baptism. So I think that baptism, you know, the idea of drawing the sign together with the signified, that constituting a new subject that we are no longer dealing with a kind of, uh, an, in a nominal universe, well, in a sense that, that the Jews, that was the Jewish problem. And the Jewish problem is a type of the human problem in Paul's argument. That in some way, we have this orientation in which we imagine there is life in the law. With onto theology and the modern, we need to critique that. But I think the postmodern, what, what comes after postmodernism? Well, if post, you know, the word is a buzzword, but if it's a de, if it's deconstruction, if it's an undoing of the modern, I think it's a preparation for what the New Testament, what Paul is describing for us. That's why I, you know, I don't know, I don't think I'd call myself postmodern, but I can embrace all of that. That postmodernity has hit upon a biblical truth that is there in Heidegger and in, in Nietzsche in, in Derrida. And so we can read these guys. Now, the interesting thing, I think each of them are misreading the Bible to just be onto theology. And they're reading the Bible that way because they're all raised in a their, their familiarity with Christianity is a kind of perverse Christianity. All of that to say the point of you know what Zizek says is that. Christianity separates out the obscene superego. I think that's true I, I think that that we can begin to identify the obscenity of this God of this philosophy, of this law of this orientation of this subjectivity and that's what this picture of baptism of being joined to Christ means it's not a being joined to his likeness in Dunn's picture or in the you know the outward side of an inward event. No, it's that now we're joined to our bodies. Suddenly you're incarnate. The thing that's died, of course, is not any reality. The thing that has died is the body written over with the law. The body of death, the body of sin has died. Calvin has no room for that language. He's going to put the principle of the flesh, he's just going to tie it to the body. And so that's sort of, I, th- I think that is key to this chapter, uh, the dying with Christ, you can almost read Jack, of course, but just to say, he's just going to begin to talk about death per se, and that Christ then, it's not the peculiarity of the death of Christ. But, you know, obviously there's, there are places we cannot go with him, but I think he's giving us a depiction, an entree into Romans 6, 7, and 8. That is very Pauline, and that we've lost because we're surrounded by Augustinian, Calvinistic, Protestant. I don't know what to call it. It's not that Roman Catholicism or you know, that it escapes that, because it it has it too has participated in nominalism. And you know, this is the the significance of the Nouvelle theologians, that they too are rejecting and understanding that was present there in, in uh, Roman Catholicism.
3: Mm. Sorry, Paul, do you think does uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, do they do any better in this area or are they equally
1: captive? <laughs> <laughs> well, <Now>, Matt's here. <laughs> if I had to choose a atonement theory, yeah. in other words, what Eastern Orthodoxy didn't do was what happened with Augustinianism and Salmianism, you know, in in the area of atonement. See, But when we say Eastern, I don't know that that's a, a proper label, because I think that was just Christian at one point. But it got subsumed, it got overcome in the West. But is there, you know, I think any good Eastern Orthodox person would tell you Eastern Orthodoxy has also been involved in the thing that we've depicted tonight the a kind of fascination with the law instituted by the state. I don't know that anybody escaped that that perversity but Matt, do you want to jump in there? No,
5: I think that's it I think you hit it there I mean that's why I became Orthodox you know is because I think that the atonement theories uh, you know the Orthodox they never had to deal with some of this stuff like Anselm, I like Anselm good enough, you know, but he's not venerated as a saint in the same East, you know, just in the West. But um, but yeah, I definitely think that what Paul just said there at the end, that the you know, Orthodox Christendom, Orthodoxy certainly did not escape Christendom, which of course goes part and parcel with everything that Paul's been doing in all these different classes. In other words, I think that and Paul, maybe that's a good way to how does how does everything that you're doing tonight with subjectivity and onto theology and all that relate to even Something like uh, what happens when Christianity joins itself to the state or the law.
1: The beauty of these wonderful times in which we're living, that the perverts are obvious. But in a sense, the perverts have always been obvious. What would a pervert do? There is an absolutizing of his law. Calvin would burn him at the stake. What are the perverts today doing? Mike Pompeo said, you cannot question the Constitution. If you question the Constitution, the whole structure will come undone. You cannot question the law. The words of a true pervert, a trained pervert, a sophisticated pervert. And so I think that we're seeing the rise of uh, the, just the exposure of this perverse Christianity. And I think it's exposed itself, exposed itself, maybe, maybe that's the wrong word, but I think it's true. It, it's clear what it is, that it's tied itself. And, our, you know, they're carting our neighbors off here to the, the graveyard. It, it's, it's not a game that we're playing. That This is life and death. In other words, their identity is tied up with the authority of a political figure, a political party, and that's all gotten mixed into religion. That's why I think Carl Schmidt is interesting here. Because in a, some way, you know, we think we're dealing in politics, but it's not just politics. I always think it's politics tinged with religion. I mean, obviously with evangelicalism. But even where, you know, I don't know that all these people are overtly, I think most of them are. But but it, nonetheless, it's all tinged with a kind of religious glow to it. This is a, a an unusual time. It's a, And I mean this partly true that I think that we could, could pass our lives in a kind of perverse religion, and it not be exposed for what it is, or we not be aware of what it is. But of course, once you start killing people in the name of Jesus, you think something might have gone wrong somewhere? I think that's a sign. You know, once you start blessing the fighter jets, blessing the nuclear missiles, so that that we do have a kind of secular state. But what that means in Schmidt's view is, well, yeah, but the state has become the church. It's taken on the equivalent of the church.
5: And the same way that, you know, all of us are kind of oriented to the law in various forms, you know, the, you're just describing what's happening also in the church and how the church has had a misorientation to the law and displaced God for the state.
1: Yeah, I think that we continually have to examine ourselves. We're all subject to the capitalistic delusion. This thing can get a, get get round the throat in so many ways. So to imagine that you can just easily stand outside of it is itself a delusion. I mean, once you name the powers and you realize, oh, we're surrounded by this thing. It's everywhere. Then you realize, hey, I really need Jesus. Because I think what Christ does for us is deliver us from this perversity. What he's supposed to do. And of course, the confounded nature of this thing is that Christ has been co-opted by the pervert. That's not a nice way to talk. But once you deploy Christ in the name of your law, doctrine, religion, that in a sense, his efficacy is undone.
5: Paul, I I think that you really nailed it. I think it was one of your
4: messages in the last few days where you put up uh, Dylan's song with God on our side. And I couldn't believe, that's 1964 that he he penned that song. And you look at it now, and my goodness, it's like it's just the most prophetic thing I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, yeah.
4: And that's, you know, God is on our side because we can justify it.
1: And it, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about war. You know, he goes through the song. He goes, He describes each of the wars, and then he ends the verse and said, and God is on our side. That's what every pervert.
5: It's also whatever uh paul i remember you telling me about a study a long time ago that you read about people on death row and you know the people were all in for for murder and they just went and they just asked them, and they said well why'd you do it and they they all said the same thing they all said i had to do it uh they they had a coming in other words justice the law you know whatever that thing was inside of them that where they said well I, you know they, they they weren't playing around they were saying i had to do it I had. And so but this is always the logic, you know, I think this is what, Paul, you're describing in all the different sort of areas of, our, you know, socio political, economic, whatever. It's like, well, you know, we, we had to drop the bomb on, you know, Hiroshima. Uh, it's like, you know, well, we had to, you know, we, we had to. Um, it's like, no, we did it, you know. So in other words, you know, we had to do evil so the good may come. But that's the logic. That's always the logic of the our orientation to the law. That's exactly what Saint Paul says, by the way, in the beginning of Rome, and you know, in the beginning of his, of his book of letters to the Romans, where he says that, "Let us do evil, so that good may come." That that's always the logic of sin. That's always the logic of our orientation, our misorientation to the law, that we would do something evil so that good may come. That that just always repeats itself i saw this horrible i was watching this prison i like some of these like world's toughest prison type shows you know on on like uh, netflix and stuff and i was watching you know it was late at night and all of a sudden i saw this guy and he was called the uh he was from around here like where i live they said you know he was telling his story and, and the guy said yeah you know my girlfriend she cheated on me and she got pregnant i found out about it and so whenever she was nine months pregnant i took her into her her parents bedroom and i cut the baby out uh in front of her parents and they say, "Well, why'd you do it?" And He said, "I had to do it. What do you mean? I had to do. It. I had to show her that what you know that what she did was wrong, and it demanded an example be made." Uh, you told the story of the Japanese guy who uh, you know was cheating on his wife, and he killed, or you know, where he killed his wife and kids, or whatever, and threw them in trash bags and disposed of them. But I'm sure that that guy would say the same thing. He'd say, "Well, I had to do it." Hitler, he had to do it, you know, he had to get rid of the, you know, the Jew. So it's just kind of interesting to me that, like, that's how the logic always works. And I think it kind of, even with the, with the church sort of cozying up to the state, they would say the same thing. They would say, well, we had to do it. You know, the political situation demanded, uh, etc." It's always the same thing.
1: Yeah. Well, so that's it. Uh, this is uh, the, why they kill. I can't remember the guy's name, but it's, uh, it's actually his PhD uh, dissertation. He goes around and interviews, and he he himself was picked on. He's a very small guy, but his father was very violent. And so he creates a system, he calls it violentization. He describes it as as almost mechanical, that people who do violent crimes, that it's highly predictable that they themselves have been exposed to levels of violence. They've been attenuated to, to violence. And then he describes it almost in religion. And when they describe their own murders of people, he's, it almost be, sounds religious because a kind of righteousness or a uh, righteous wrath that they have to, they have to do this thing.
5: But that's what we were saying about God earlier, right? That That is the same logic that, well, he had to do it, you know, or, or you can even think of it in the perverse way of like, Well, we had to kill Jesus in order to be forgiven for killing Jesus. The logic is always perverse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Anselm actually works that out that, you know, there's just enough credit left over in those who killed Jesus. They needed to kill him, but they did it in ignorance. And so that left a little bit of the debt and allowed it to be. In other words, he's talking about it literally in terms of money. Uh, an economy and so it is a it's an economy of exchange in which uh the debt is what's the worst crime it would be to kill jesus but they didn't know what they were doing and so they still have some credit But that's roman 7 that's
5: i'm doing the thing that i don't know what i'm doing you know or I, I i i you know i do the thing i don't understand or whatever i do the evil so that the good may come yeah it's
1: i mean you know perverse i think is a, is a good word for it I'm just using it in a purely psychoanalytic technical way. Well, I am. I really need
3: some good news. I can't wait for next
1: week. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, I'm not going to make it. (laughs) Uh, Next week, it's all good. It's all good, and that's that's chapter ten. It it opens with chapter eight, eight. You know, the end of chapter seven. Thank God, we've been delivered from the body of death through our Lord Jesus Christ. The law of life and the Holy Spirit has displaced the law of sin and death. Man. I would say,
5: if you don't read another chapter in your book, I'm serious about this. I would read, is it chapter 10? Is that chapter the one? ten? Chapter the 10. I mean, to yeah. me, that was like the, you know, I was kind of feeling like Rob because I remember I was like editing it and everything. I'm like, good Lord, it's <laughs> dark, you know? And then I get to like chapter 10 and it was like, boom, you know, like the light kind of hits because you kind of see how all those different categories are kind of displaced by things like hope and faith and love and prayer and all this stuff. It's like, it's, Paul shows, he's like, you know, actually there is no prayer in Romans seven. There is no, he goes through and just shows, you know,
1: that, so it was quite, it was, it was uh, gratifying in a non-perverse way. It's no, there's no Holy spirit in seven. There's no prayer. There's no God, Abba father. There's no, you know, think of all the things missing in chapter seven that are present in chapter eight. Oh, that's because chapter Seven's not Christianity, and chapter 8 is. And that's the transition. I think that's the excitement of the transition. So that now we are constituted in Christ and and getting at all that that means. And that's next week. Chapter 10, and we do the conclusion. But
5: don't be ashamed because Paul never knows whatever he's being way too hard.
1: <laughs> well, Nathan's probably better at this than I am. And uh, le- Levinus may, in fact, be more down-to-earth than Zizek. But I think when you dwell with a subject a long time, you lose track of what may be the, the hard part of it.
5: I remember when I took Paul's class, the first time I took it, I sat in the first class for whatever, 45 minutes, and I, the class was over, and I thought, well, I understood Jesus,
3: <laughs>
5: theology, uh those were but all the other thousands of words, I don't know what they I know that they were all English words and that they somehow fit together, but they, they're not making any sense. But
2: yeah. yeah. Yesterday when, when when we uh met last night, he asked me where he lost me, and I was like, ah, about three years ago. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Let's start again.
4: We need the uh well, we need people like you to uh we've listed some others like Westfall or Caputo or Carney or something like that have read the Paul Recurs and the Jacques Lacan and the Manuel Levinas. And like, you know, that's what I like. Lo- I like to always have, you know, the primary text, which is itself very dense. And then if you could just have someone who's just who knows it so well and then, yeah, but sometimes both are just overwhelming. So I understand that for sure. You can, I mean, and then, like, Zizek's probably one of, is very difficult, like, to read. And then, of course, he, he appeals to probably, to Lacan and Hegel, who are, I'm in to, just finishing Phenomenology of Spirit, and we have our last, we're also like this course, there's only two more meetings left, and I've actually, can say I've read Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, but I can also say that I didn't understand any of it. So, oh. it's just That's very true. difficult. I don't, like, even with people explaining it to me, it just seems... I mean, I guess I get some parts of it or something, but I feel like I wouldn't be able to really explain it to someone else, except for just it's continually failing to retrieve knowledge. And, and then it's, you know, I don't know. It's like it's difficult, even with the schooling I've had to read those guys. So, yeah. Anyways, it's good to have interpreters like you, is all I'm saying.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that was what Zizek said about Lacan. He said, I never understood Lacan. You know, in the former Yugoslavia, they were all reading Lacan trying to uh, understand him on their own. And then he goes to to Paris and he does a Ph.D. and is uh, under Jacqueline Miller, who is Lacan's Mm son-in-law. And so Zizek always says, it's Miller's Lacan that I know. I don't know any other Lacan. And so when Miller explained Lacan, suddenly I understood him. And I think that's true that 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 the sometimes we need the interpreter. If you <laughs> if you go and you read Lacan's seminars, they're almost incomprehensible. Not partly because what they're doing, they're all reading Freud. And they're coming, they've read Freud and they're discussing the text. And nobody's breaking it down. They're just they're riffing on the text. That's kind of what I've done in the book by laying out Freud, Lacan and then Zizek, I think I've made the topic accessible and given us a key, uh, I hope, to, to understanding it. Can I ask a last
3: question? Um, I was looking for book reviews or critiques or engagements of your work. I haven't found many of them, but maybe this is a question for next week, but just briefly, have you had a lot of pushback from, um, from many scholars or? Uh, thinkers of your work
1: it's been reviewed uh actually a journal in canada yeah
3: i've, I've seen that one yep
1: the toronto, toronto yeah uh so i've gotten a few reviews nothing you know i i think that a cop out in a review and i the, of course as the author i'm never gonna <laughs> agree biased. with the criticism <laughs> but an easy an easy thing to do in a review is to say Oh, but he didn't talk about this. If I remember, the guy in in Canada, uh, Canada, he, it was a fair fairly favorable review. And then he said, "Yeah, but he didn't talk about the rest of the New Testament." I said, "Yeah, no, I didn't do that." And it maybe it's something you know you need to tie other things into, but you can only. So I can't say that anybody has given me pushback. The people that would have given me pushback that in fact are reading Zizek and Lacan are on the back of my book, praising the book. Sure. And one of them is Marcus Pound. My, what I'm doing with Zizek is very different than Marcus Pound. I really appreciate Pound's stuff, but he's sort of like, you know, Peter Rawlins or other people. He just said, he's just going with Zizek. And I actually, you know, name Pound and say, well, this is his, what he's doing and that's not what I'm doing. But I, I thought if anybody were to critique what I was doing, yeah. he would have been one. And of course, i have been a little curious. I know that he would push back on chapter ten, because mm-hmm. he's not a Christian. Yeah. But I don't know otherwise. But no, I can't I can't say that anybody's engaged the work that have given a, a severe critique of it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, last, next week is, is the conclusion.
4: Thank you. Bye. See you everyone. Take care.
1: Okay, good
0: night. Paul. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical, and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, Or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.